I want you to turn in your Bibles, uh, like I said, to page 924 in the Pew Bible, and just put your thumb in there. We're going to read this, but not all at once. We're going to read it in bits and pieces throughout the morning. And let's begin by considering this city of Philippi in Acts 16. The European Roman colony city of Philippi was only about 125 miles from Asiatic Troas, where Paul heard the Macedonian call. It's less actually as the crow flies, and probably around 150 miles by the sea route followed by the apostle Paul. And though close in proximity, the two cities were worlds apart. For me, I'm reminded of crossing the great Ohio River that separates Jeff City, Indiana from Lovell, Kentucky. The bridge spans maybe a half a mile, but even though the Walmarts and the gas stations are pretty much the same on both sides of the river, when I cross that river, I feel as if I'm in a foreign country, like I have a Yankee entered Dixie. I'm reminded of the great Kentucky Senator Henry Clay, who in the early 1800s was challenged to a duel by one of his fellow Kentucky citizens. A duel with pistols. But they had a problem. It would be a desecration, they felt, to spill the blood of a native son of Kentucky upon the native soil of their own state. So what they did is they got in a rowboat and rowed across and they had their duel on the shores of Indiana. Place matters. It certainly matters. I knew this was going to happen. It certainly matters for Luke. And it doesn't take long to understand that for Luke, every detail is important. His writing is filled with names and dates and places, ports of call along the way. Place matters. And the place here is the colony city of Philippi. For the next two Sundays, if God permits, and if the elders permit, we will rest our gaze on the city of Philippi and the events that occurred there so very long ago, but which are recorded here for a reason, for our encouragement and our warning and our maturity in Christ. Our focus this morning will be on verses 11 through 24 and next week on the rest of the chapter. Now, I framed this in my own study as if this were a play with scenes and acts and staging and characters, some small, some large, some highlighted, some in the background. And it even has stage lighting, as we will see. And there is more. It has strong connective tissue with everything that's happened before, and it will reach ahead to tease us about what's going to happen next. It's the mark of a good narrative. This is a masterpiece in every sense. And I want you to join me as the curtain rises on chapter 16, verses 11. I call this scene the city of Philippi. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed 
that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. That's our opening scene. The curtain lifts. Paul and his entourage enter Philippi. They disembark at Neapolis. And they walk the 12 miles or so on the great Roman road, the Ignatian Way. It's the highway that connected the Adriatic to the Aegean and then on to Constantinople. Or is it Istanbul? If you're older, you probably are chuckling. I'm told you can still walk portions of that road today and upon whose enormous stone slabs march the legions of Caesar and also bore the sandals of the Apostle Paul and his friends, the greater conqueror who came in the name of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you look at this scene in Philippi, you'll notice the Colosseum. You'll notice the marketplace or the Agora. You'll notice the shrines to the Oracle of Delphi, 200 miles or so to the south where priestesses, fortune tellers with literally a python spirit would hold court and for a fee predict the future. You'll notice the Roman fortress and you'll see its uh, attached prison, the garrison. This is a city of Greek heritage doing everything it can to ape her powerful sister and become another little Rome. So as Paul and company walk through the city gates, we wonder along with them, so where is this man from Macedonia that pleaded with us so urgently to come and help him? They apparently arrived without any fanfare. No welcome committee, no synagogue. We may imagine that they walked the streets of the city, eyes casting about searching for a place where the gospel might be sown. Would the Holy Spirit allow them permission to do that here? They finally, after a few days, they exit the city gates and they make their way down to the little river, the Gangites, where it says, quote, as they supposed there was a place of prayer. So before we move to that scene, let me give you a little additional context. The tension in the city is palpable. We should take a minute and understand why that is. About 350 years earlier, as Daryl mentioned last week, the Macedonian king Philip, in all of his humility, conquered the city and renamed it, of course, after himself. And situated as it was along the Ignatian Way, it predictably became the route by which Octavian and Mark Anthony pursued the armies and the murderers of Julius Caesar, Cassius and Brutus. They caught up with them here and defeated them in what is known to history as the Battle of Philippi. Over the course of the next hundred years or so, it became a very convenient place in which to muster soldiers out of the Roman army. A, a difficulty for great conquerors throughout history is what do you do with these massive armies when you're done with them? The last thing Napoleon wanted was a million idle men who knew how to fight lounging about the streets of Paris, right? But they would be mustered out. They would be given land or jobs or position in this city. So you have Greek heritage, a clinging to some sort of ancient and cultic Greek religion, maintaining its legitimacy by not rocking the political boat. It was a cosmopolitan center of international trade, 
under the heel of Roman law and a superimposed Roman culture. This is the city of Philippi. Scene, the curtain goes down and it rises up on another scene that I'm titling A Most Extraordinary Woman. Follow along with me as I read chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I've titled this series, it's a two-part series, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, as an intended cheesy reference to the structure of events as they unfolded, as well as to a movie that about half of you have never seen or ever heard of, so it's my own private joke. Paul has specific and life-altering engagements with three very different people. They aren't extraordinary by any measure, and they aren't the only encounters that he has, because in verse 40 of the same chapter, we know that Paul went to Lydia's house. Why? To comfort the brothers. The church is growing, and the gospel is being preached to many, but we're given insights into three particular cases. Now, the first of these is an interesting woman, a businesswoman named Lydia. Now, being from Thyatira in the region of formerly what was known as Lydia, which is in modern-day Asia Minor, it could be that what we, we read as her name may refer to her place of origin. Your guess is as good as mine on this one, but let's continue to call her Lydia, shall we? If for no other reason, <coughs> then our dear Lydia Kohlmeyer has chosen her as her namesake. And I am told, because I checked, that we have one other Lydia among us. She is a young girl whom I have not had the pleasure of meeting, but well done, young lady. You have chosen a good namesake, as we will discover. And by the way, if you are named Lydia and I haven't made reference to you, we can pass out a resentment register, if you want, later in the service. Okay. What do we know about her? Well, she's a seller of purple goods, or perhaps purple dye, an expensive and upscale product by any measure. A purple garment typically would be worn by kings. <coughs> we know that she's a foreigner in the city, being from Thyatira, and we also know that she's a worshiper of God, suggesting that she had not been adopted into the um, Jewish community through proselytizing, but nonetheless, followed the law of Moses, um, honored the Sabbath, and given that description, it's no wonder that Paul and his friends find her and others at the place of prayer on the Sabbath. Finally, though, we don't immediately see it. She is a woman of some perhaps considerable means. Widowed? Maybe though we see no evidence of that. Children, again, nothing in the narrative to suggest that. An agent, perhaps, of a manufacturer in Asia, like a sales rep, it could well be. 
just conjecture. But we also know one other very important thing about her. Her heart was opened by God to do what? To pay attention to Paul's words. What a small thing it seems to actually listen. It takes a lot of work to actually listen. It takes a an intentionality about it to hear what somebody is actually saying. And she unknowingly, perhaps, joins a fraternity of women in Scripture who listen carefully and obey. Now, it may surprise you to know that not everybody listens well. Some of you are married to men who don't listen well. So I'm going to tell you a story. It was around maybe 1978, thereabouts. And my wife and I had been married about three years at that point. And we, meaning me, decided that we needed to buy a stereo. We had to use American money and purchase this from a store, and it was new. We did it in spite of my wife's principle by which she lived then and lives now, which is we'll spend whatever is required on a tool of production. But that does not apply to a stereo. So we compromised and we got the stereo and I brought it home (laughs) and I plugged it and how else are we going to listen to our Godspell soundtrack (laughs) and our Cynthia Clausen records? So I plugged it in and I hooked it up and I put the wires in the back and put the speakers up on the mantel place and Nothing happened. As Ray Glinsky would say, it was just nothing but crickets. No lights, no whistles, nothing. But I was a handy person and I knew exactly what was required. This is getting more embarrassing the the more real it becomes. I went out to my truck and I got a pair of wire cutters and uh, two um, wire nuts and a roll of duct tape. I cut the cord off the end of the thing and I wired on a new cord because I knew that's what it had to be. It could be nothing else. And as I did that and got ready to plug it back in, I looked over and I saw the countenance of my wife. And she had this horrified and, and non-comprehending look on her face. But you have to understand, she was still in the, who is this man? <laughs> and what was I thinking? phase of our relationship. And of course, as you know, because God is a God of great irony, it, my, my fix didn't work. And it wasn't until I actually read the directions that I saw that you had to bring the arm over on top of the stack. And when you did that, the wheels turned, the lights went on, and the magic happened. The point of the story, never take attentive listening for granted. Lydia joins a host of biblical women. Consider Elizabeth, for example, in Luke 1, 41. She listened actually to the leaping of the child in her own womb. And she proclaimed a prophetic word of praise to God and an encouragement to her cousin. Consider Mary a few verses earlier. She listens intently and reflectively to the message of the angel. And have you ever noticed how she responded? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Reach back into the Old Testament. Remember the story of Abigail? 
She listened to the ominous words of her servant, the dire warning, when her husband, out of pride, refused to heed even this most clear warning. Her acute attention and quick response saves not only her life, but that of her entire household. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 25. How about the sister of Martha in Luke 10.39? The text says that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She was commended with the promise that what she heard would not be taken from her. How about the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair in Luke 7.47? Jesus said to her, Woman, your sins are forgiven. She listened, and we know that. Why? Because her heart was broken in repentance and gratitude. And just one more. Consider Bathsheba, who listened to the voice of the prophet Nathan with great care in 1 Kings chapter 1. Do you remember his warning? He said, Bathsheba, listen to this advice, because if you don't, neither you nor your son Solomon will live to see another sunrise. And she listened and she acted swiftly and successfully. And now we can add Lydia to the list of those women who listened with intentionality, heart opened in a supernatural way because how else are we going to listen to the good news of the gospel but by the invasion of the heart of a stubborn person. And her listening resulted in the glory of God. So the concluding words of the scene are telling in what they include and what they leave out. In verse 15, there appears to be this immediate jump from her enabled hearing to her baptism. The clear presumption is that her careful, attentive listening, supernaturally enabled, resulted in repentance and faith. And like the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about earlier in Acts, she surely must have asked herself and asked the Apostle Paul, what hinders me being baptized? And the answer must have been nothing, because that's what happened next. It's hard to conclude otherwise than if the Spirit opens the heart, bringing your ears to the attention of the gospel, saving faith will likely follow as night follows day. It's hard to even state that so categorically, isn't it? Yet it raises an unexpected question, I think. Do we really listen to the message of the gospel in all of its cosmic, meaning incalculably vast implications? Or are we more interested in what our response might be, our yeah buts and our you don't understand, or I've heard it before? There are some in this room, I'm sure, who have heard it all before. Have you heard this gospel so many times that you no longer really listen to its call? And if so, let this be an encouragement and a warning. Remember that the words Paul spoke were words that were bigger than he was. They were words that brought about her improbable surrender to the Lord. And I should say probably impossible because absent the power of the Lord to open the heart, it will remain forever closed. So the scene ends with what will be a link to the end of the chapter. I, I, I smile, actually, when I read the words, she prevailed upon us. This was a woman who was not to be said no to. She prevailed upon us. And this church grew and developed under the the, the pen and the heart of the Apostle Paul, and it met in her home. 
And in verse 40, we'll find out that before he leaves Philippi, with all of the dramatic offense that unfold, he doesn't do it before he goes back to Lydia's house to comfort the brothers. So let's take a couple of observations before we close this scene. Every part of this scene was choreographed before the foundation of the world, and none of it met the expectations or would have been in the script written by the Apostle Paul or Lydia herself. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, have you ever just wondered at the marvel of the hardness of the human heart? I think it's amazing. People will die before they admit to being wrong. When it comes to matters of, of uh, pride or injustice or perceived injustice or a slight because of unwarranted ridicule, we will hold that grudge till we die. That's the hardness of the human heart. And yet in Lydia, we've been shown what can happen when the Lord crashes into the heart of a stubborn man or woman or child. Curtain drops. And it raises now on a scene that I'm calling a young woman doubly cursed. Chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. Follow along with me. <clears throat> As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So the curtain rises on another unlikely encounter. Um, have you ever met a fortune teller, by the way? Back in the day before we had a television, my wife and I would listen to WGN radio at night. 720 on your dial. Milt Rosenberg had a show. Does anybody remember that? No, of course you don't. Um, he had this with interesting guests, and, and it was, uh, he was a, a, a professor at the University of Chicago, Jewish extraction, devout atheist, avowed atheist. My wife wrote him a letter at some point sharing the gospel with him. And we've always wondered, did he ever, did he ever read it? We don't know. What, he, what we do know is that if he read it, he had been exposed to the greatest truth in the world. Right? Well, many years ago now, on the Milt Rosenberg show, we smiled when he had a guest on named Yuri Geller. Anybody remember him? Of course not. Yuri Geller was, was a, essentially a fortune teller. His powers of mental acuity were so fantastic that you could hold a spoon, we are assured, and through the radio waves of him speaking from the studio in Chicago, the spoon that you were holding in your hand would bend. I never saw any evidence that that actually happened, but that was the story. And my father, in his inimitable way, said, well, that would be a pretty cool thing if I ever had a need for a drawer full of bent spoons. <laughs> and so we smiled, and it was funny. But there is nothing benign about that. 
The fact is that false prophets are dangerous and their cruelty is made manifest in the crushed hopes of vulnerable human beings who traffic in their offerings. A fortune teller preys on the weak and the heartbroken. There is nothing benign about it. And there is nothing benign about the slave girl here whose masters are manipulating her under the control of this demon that resides in her to tell people's fortune for money. You know what the law of Moses says you do with a false prophet? Deuteronomy 18. If what they say doesn't come true, you kill them. Did you know there's another test? Deuteronomy 13. If what they say comes true, but they lead the people away into idolatry, kill them. If the prophet's words come to pass, but he would lead the people away from the Lord God to worship other false gods, put them to death. And by the way, in almost every case of false prophecy, it is accompanied by financial entanglements that not only empty hearts of hope, but they also empty your pockets of money. And you're thinking, okay, you can get off your hobby horse on this, because in our day and age, we're not vulnerable to this kind of thing. No one actually believes in fortune tellers. Well, let me push back just a bit. First of all, over $2 billion a year is spent for the assurances of mediums and the comfort of astrologers. Nancy Reagan, you all know this. You, you do remember Nancy Reagan. <laughs> Nancy Reagan famously consulted her horoscope every day for guidance in all things. And when I talk about the $2 billion, that's the least of what is wasted. Because what, what is lost is any reasonable filter. How are you going to tell your fortune teller, uh, I don't think so, that really sounds nuts. You have no filter by which, by which to make that stand. And think about what you unintentionally gain. You gain a sense of fear for the future. And also, in my experience, a sense of simmering anger. And the reason is because where one is, the other is almost surely to follow. By entertaining the ominous what-ifs and the false promises of fortune tellers, who are pretty much everywhere, by the way, you awaken to and you have no defenses against an uncontrollable darkness crouching around every corner, and eventually you will become afraid to open your own front door. So be wary of modern-day fortune-tellers. They will turn you into cynics, into doubters, and they come in many guises. Whether it's the financial bits and pieces that you hang on every word hoping for an edge in how to manage your retirement portfolio. Whether it's mainstream news that you're addicted to and you follow like lemmings to the sea or whether they be blog posts on the internet touting conspiracy theories against which you have no defense. So, believer, and this is just a word from an elder. That's all this is. We do well to walk carefully when we're strolling along the broad highway of network news and the ever-expanding universe of social media. Well, you might ask, well then, who should I listen to? And a couple of months ago, I would have answered this question by saying, 
aha, you need balance. Get yourself other sources. So you're drawing your information from more than one place. I don't think that's good advice anymore. And the reason is because it's exactly what King Ahab did in 1 Kings 22. 300 false prophets were insufficient. So what do you do? Well, you go get 100 more. So you get 400 false prophets to offset the one true prophet, the man of God, Micaiah. And it didn't work out very well for Ahab. And folks, we can do better than that. So here's just a couple, three things off the top of my head. Listen to God's word. Read God's word. Saturate yourself in it. You should be filling your heart and soul with the word of God more than you're filling it with any other source. The other thing is, and this is just um, intuitive from my point of view, listen to and talk to your fellow believers here in this place face-to-face if you can. And I don't even care what you talk about because it is in the daily conversation of respect and kindness toward one another in conversation as you dialogue with each other that will rub off. Iron will sharpen iron and your perspective will be broadened and deepened and you'll be led back continually to the cross. And finally, though it may sound disingenuous in some way, listen to the voices of your elders. I can promise you, though, that we are as confused about much of what goes on in our world as you are, maybe more so. And part of that is because when you're an elder, you really don't have the freedom to espouse an opinion that you don't know is true. But I can say this for sure. We seldom bite. So come talk to us. Do that without fear. And we'll talk to you as well. All right? Occasionally we'll bite, but I wouldn't worry about it. So with these things in mind, and now I am, I'm off my soapbox. Let's rejoin Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and maybe a few others in this next encounter. We don't have long to wait. On a return visit to the place of prayer at the riverside, they, note the we in the text, were met by a slave girl unnamed in the story, but even at the outset is doubly cursed possessed of a demon and mastered by men who would profit from the false hope that she peddles. And if you look at the scene carefully, you'll observe that we see the slave girl only dimly. It is as if the house lights are lowered and we can't quite make out her expression. We're not told her name, we don't know her backstory, and yet, here she is, one of three encounters with the Apostle Paul in Philippi. So let's, let's pause for a moment and just dig in a little deeper into who this unfortunate girl was. She described her literally as having a python spirit. By the way, we showed the children for the children's music this morning, showed a piece of art that shows Paul casting the demon out of this girl. And in it, she is actually wrapped in the picture in a snake. And it is, we, we debated whether or not we should even show it because it's, it just seems so creepy. But we decided to show it anyway because it was so much fun. She owes allegiance to the oracle of Delphi, a Greek god worshipped in a Roman city. She was almost certainly a Greek woman with masters who navigated these tricky waters in a way that netted them loads of profit over time. In any event, 
Paul and his friends soon have another altogether unexpected member of the entourage following along behind, shouting, proclaiming the allegiance of these men to a new God, the Most High. Anyone in that city hearing her would have understood her reference to the Most High God as being to Zeus. And not once, not for an afternoon, but it says for many days. I don't know about you, but it wouldn't take me long before I get fed up with that. It's an interesting question, actually. Did Paul allow her to spew out her proclamatory dissonance because at a technical level you could say that it was true? Or did it take him a few days to realize that she was in the service of this horrible house guest with human masters even adding more confusion to the mix? And under their thumb, she's following them, drumming up business of her own, hitchhiking on the coattails of the real thing in Paul and his companions. Or could it be that he saw her as both a victim and an antagonist? And upon being convinced that she was bound, tormented by an evil demonic spirit, found within his own spirit growing an outrage at this sub-basement level of pain and suffering being inflicted on this woman and her hearers. <clears throat> and that this God that Paul had served so long and faithfully would be taken advantage of in this way was something that caused outrage to arise in his soul. That's what's going on here, I think. Knowing intuitively the price that he was likely to pay, he rebuked the spirit with power and resolve, calling on the name of Jesus Christ in a command to come out of her. And that's exactly what happened. Not the next day, not over the course of time, but that very hour. There's an important question in this scene, and the question is this. Did the slave girl come to Christ? It's certainly more ambiguous than in the previous scene, which has ambiguities of its own, by the way. But there's a couple of things that would suggest that she did. And here I'm leaning on the, the wonderful commentary by John Stott called The Spirit, the Church, and the World. Um, I'd encourage you to get it. It's, uh, it's very accessible and very devotional in its conclusions. First, her desperate need was met in the name of Jesus Christ. And to heal the body without healing the soul would seem like a hollow victory. The second thing is that the slave girl is the second of three persons described in this 16th chapter of the book of Acts. She is sandwiched, if you will, between Lydia, the Asian prevail of purple goods, and a character we haven't met yet, the Roman jailer, both of whom become saved and baptized. And it's reasonable to conclude in the progression of these characters that she also has been saved to the uttermost. As a salvation of the other two is not made entirely explicit in the context, but it's inferred, we may reasonably infer it here as well. The curtain goes down on the slave girl, and it rises up on the dramatic climactic event in the act and I'm entitling this scene Yet the Piper Must Be Paid reading from chapter 16 verses 19 through 24 
When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. As a curtain rises, you'll notice commotion over there in the marketplace where goods and money changed hands and the magistrates held court. Paul and Silas are seized and presented before the assembled community with four charges against them. First, they are Jews. Second, they are disturbers of the peace. Third, they are advocates of unlawful customs. And fourth, and maybe most serious of all, they are violators of Roman law. The results of mob rule, and the justice, by the way, of mob rule, is predictable and swift, and the public join in the, the attack, and the magistrates command that these two men be stripped, that they be beaten with rods, thrown into prison, feed in stocks, under the watchful eye of a reliable Roman war vet who is the jailer. I suggest that because it's, it's the kind of patronage job that one would expect to be given as a reward for military service rendered. And the spotlight will be on him in the second and final act next week. For now, though, it's enough to know that he will be the third gospel encounter of Paul described here in the city of Philippi. Until then, stay tuned next week for the scene entitled Roman Soldier and Roman Law in the Service of the Most High God. So as we round the backstretch this morning, heading toward a conclusion, a bunch of questions come to my mind. Here's just a couple. Did Paul and company have any regrets about heeding the Macedonian call? I think I would. Uh, I don't know about you. I've never been beaten with rods. I hope I never have to endure that. Did Lydia or the slave girl feel any sense of complicity or shame knowing that it was on their behalf that Paul and Silas were receiving the blows as they heard the thud on their flesh? Did they wince every time they heard it? Or how about this intriguing question, and we'll consider this in more, more detail next week. Why on earth did Paul not play the Roman citizen card? In Acts 22, he plays it perfectly. But here, he doesn't mention it until after the blows are inflicted. Why? Next week. All in good time. But consider this observation and the question that follows. There are two women in this remarkable story who are about as different from each other as they could possibly be. You've got Lydia, who is an accomplished woman. She has resources. She has a household she's responsible for. She has some position in this community. She has a personality that would allow her to navigate life well. And then you've got the slave girl 
who's got nothing. She doesn't even own her own person. Well, that's the observation. But here is the question. Is the gospel enough to bind them together in their affections? The church at Philippi takes root over time under Paul's watchful eye. Do you think that the slave girl ever knocked timidly on Lydia's door on a Sunday morning hoping to join her gospel sister in worship? I sure hope the answer is yes. The way we answer that question is critical for you and me. The simple answer, of course, is yes, the gospel is enough. Their sisterhood is anchored in their mutual heart and longings, their desperate need, and even more so by adoption through salvation by faith. But maybe, though, and I'm really preaching to myself here, wretched man that I am, maybe you are still in your, who are these people and what was I thinking phase of your relationship today with your brothers and sisters in this place. Matthew Henry in his commentary on Ephesians 1 verse 15, which, in which, by the way, Paul says to the Ephesians, hey, I'm thankful because I have heard the reports that you love all the saints. Here's how Matthew Henry puts it in his commentary. Those who love saints as such love all saints. How weak in grace, how mean in the world, how fretful and peevish soever some of them may be. Wow, stab me in the heart. If the gospel is not enough, that's a very precarious place to stand. Would you agree? Here's what that might look like. Our affections for one another might require our shared gospel identity and maybe a common interest in golf or maybe a sympathetic political ideology. Our affection for one another might require a shared surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ and a common career path or similar social or economic status. It might require a congenial manner, manner of life or even dress. Could it be that our affections for one another could require the gospel plus something as odd-sounding as the mutual friendship of our own children? May that never be, and if that is true, then we ought to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? We might as well join a supper club. It would cost a lot less and have a lot fewer headaches unless the gospel is enough. So what to do? Three things, really. One is to recognize, first of all, that the gospel must be enough to bind us together in our affections. Second thing is this. Pray for, and especially with, your brothers and sisters. My experience has been that those for whom, with whom I pray become those that I love. Third thing. Sit intentionally under the word of God preached from this pulpit. Do it together with one another because it is a great um, excavator leveling who we are and strips us away of many things so that the gospel may in fact 
be enough. Grace Church, do you ever stop to think what a remarkable thing the church is? It really is. Where else would you go to find such a disparate group of people with their own stories and so very different, and yet for whom the, the gospel is enough? The curtain rises and falls on us, just as it did for those people in Philippi so long ago. Praise God that we are linked by the gospel, and it is enough, and by nothing less than pure grace, we have the added privilege of sharing a truly abundant life together that requires sharing food and lawn chairs and maybe even head lice. And to be... <laughs> I did that to wake up the junior high kids. In the... <laughs> this isn't annoying at all, by the way. And to be so connected that we will walk with each other in laughter and argument and foolishness and talk about the Cubs or the White Sox from time to time, knowing that we will also walk with each other in the unexpected times of collapsing grief and confusion and seeming chaos. We will navigate this world together in all of its social and political disintegration that is happening all around us. This is the abundant life and it is worth guarding and protecting and marveling at. Are you thankful for one another today? I hope so. I hope that you're persuaded to be so. I'm going to let Paul have the final word here from 1 Corinthians 12 verses 14 and 15. He says this to the Corinthians, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? This from the Apostle Paul. Before we pray this morning, I'd like for the, those on the platform with the instruments to come on up as well as those who are helping to distribute communion. Father, we want your word to persuade, to proclaim, to inform, because we want to be changed people, living the abundant life, bringing you glory. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, by whose work we may be adopted and our hardened hearts melted, and we may be transformed. Be with us during these difficult days. And we thank you that we get to live in these difficult days. In Jesus' name, amen.